In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come humbly before the throne at this time, Lord, just to thank you for this time that we have together, Lord, to thank you for your word, Lord, that we would study and be instructed perfectly in it, Lord. We ask that you would be here in our presence, Lord, that you would be a light in our midst, that you would be magnified, Lord, and that the speaker would disappear, Lord, behind the glory of your majesty, Lord. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I've been wanting to do a series so that everyone would know what to expect when we're speaking here on a Sunday at Mount Carmel. And I thought it would be fitting to do the book of John in Colombia, we're doing the book of Romans. And we're in, I want to say, chapter 7 of Romans now. And these two books are often paired together. And the reason is, the Gospel of John is the story of who Jesus is. And Paul's letter to the Romans is an explanation of what he did for us. Now, all of the Gospels are categorized by theologians in different ways to make them comprehensible to people who are studying them. The book of Matthew is often called or is often referred to as the the gospel that explains why Christ is the king of the Jews. The gospel of Luke is uh, referred to as the gospel that explains Christ as man. The Gospel of Mark is Christ as a servant of God. And finally, the Gospel of John is the story of Christ as the Son of God, who Christ is. It's probably my favorite book in the Bible. I know you're not really supposed to have favorites, but I think we all do, and I think that The Gospel of John is probably my favorite book in the Bible. It was authored by John, the apostle. He was the son of Zebedee and Salome. He was brother of James the Greater. He often referred to himself as the disciple who Christ loved. There's a repeated motif where Christ will be leaning. They they reclined often. We didn't sit around a table the way we did on chairs. They would often recline at a lower table um, on cushions. And there's this image of John being sort of the youngest disciple leaning on the breast of his Lord. And this might seem odd to us in our current context. Americans are sort of hands off. We don't, we're not too touchy feely, but the vast majority of the world Uh, even today, but certainly throughout history, was not like that. If you go to India, for example, you'll see friends, platonic friends, holding hands. 
they're just much more affectionate physically toward one another. So it's sort of a strange quirk of the West where uh, we have very clearly delineated, you shake hands, only with like a real close friend will you give them a hug. If some people are too uh, prone to give hugs, we, we sort of think it's strange. So these, But these are just cultural artifacts. Back then, it would have been very normal to be physically affectionate toward your friends. And you can see this because they refer to each other as brother and sister. Now we do this today too. We refer to each other as brother and sister. And I know with my brothers... We are extremely physically affectionate. We give each other big hugs. We, my mom says that we're wallowing all over, all over each other. I think it's supposed to be like wrestling. I don't know exactly what it means, but um, we're constantly wrestling and fighting and just messing with each other. And so it's a very physically affectionate environment. And I think that's probably very close to the type of environment that they were in today or in, in ancient times. So this idea that uh, the disciple who Christ loved, John, was just hanging on his big brother Jesus's like uh, arm and just leaning on him constantly that makes perfect sense to me but it might not make perfect sense to all Americans in the current context and the question is what like why was John writing this you know the scholars have one opinion they think that it was written in you know the year the late first century 85 to 95 uh, I don't really have any good reason to agree with them I think that this could have been written pretty much any time after Christ died to any time before Paul or before John died. So I think we're really looking at a, of a range there between like 40 AD and like 95 or 90 AD. And he was probably writing this gospel in response to a heresy that was uh, beginning to sort of come up at the time. There was Gnosticism. There was a group called the Ebionites, and the Ebionites were denying the divinity of, of Christ. They were saying that he was merely man. And one of the key aspects of this like merely man uh, heresy is that he didn't pre-exist the incarnation, meaning Christ came into being, in their view, when he was born. We know this is not true. We know that Christ pre-exists all things, and we know this because the Gospel of John and many other places in the New Testament explain that Christ is God. And this rolls up into the, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These are uh, extremely deep things of the word, and we're going to get into all of them in this book. And I'm just trying to give you some, a way of introduction. I didn't want to be one of those who uh, didn't read any scripture before the introduction. So we, we, we're going to look at the scripture verse by verse, but there's a lot of introduction here because the context that he's coming from is pretty important. Um, Obviously, he wrote this book to make it absolutely crystal clear, Christ is God, there is no way around it. A lot of people don't like this book for that exact reason. Now, the name John is interesting, we should just touch on it. Um, it would have been pronounced back then like Yohanan, and from the Hebrew, Yohanan, which means God has been gracious. Anytime you see Yo in Hebrew, you it's sort of referring to uh, Yahweh, right? So when you get that sound, you should recognize that there's God in there. There's many names for God, and we're going to get to that a little bit more here as well. Many, many names for God in the Old and New Testaments. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John gets right to the point of the entire gospel. This is probably the single most comment, commented on verse in Scripture. Uh, there's no way we could cover everything that everyone has ever said about this. It is uh, 
just deep with meaning and deep with uh, sort of consequences, intellectual consequences. If you if you really reason this through, that the word pre-existed creation, uh, there's extremely deep consequences to that. <laughs> so he gets right to the point, and simultaneously he's starting at the beginning. He's making one of the most extraordinary claims in Christendom that the word was God and the word was with God in the beginning before man or anything else was there to observe it. And we all know that the word is Christ, but it seems that we know this sort of intuitively from teaching over the years. Um, I don't know how many of us would be able to point to a a verse in scripture that says uh, the word is Christ. So we're going to teach you that right now. To prove that the word is Christ, you could turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 13. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. So John, at the very end of his last writing in scripture, confirms the very first verse of his first book in scripture, which is that Christ is the word of God. And we have to understand the word. Again, a lot of this should be pretty familiar ground. If you studied the Bible at all, you've probably studied this pretty deeply. Everyone here, for example, probably knows that the Greek word for word is logos. Logos. L-O-G-O-S. Now, this word is, again, this verse couldn't be deeper. (laughs) Um, The word logos first appears in history in about 400, 500 years before Christ in the writings of Heraclitus. From that point forward, it's sort of always referred to a principle of reason. We say the word logic, which comes from the word logos. So wrapped up in this concept is an entire system and way of thinking about the world that we all take for granted. If I say the sky is red, you would all say that's incorrect. And why would you say that? You'd say because it contradicts some observed fact of, fact of your reality, right? So there's this notion of contradiction or perhaps non-contradiction that's wrapped up in the notion of logos. There's several other sort of ideas wrapped up in uh, sort of the Greek notion of logos. And the reason we're talking about the Greek notion of logos is because he's using the Greek in the first century. He's saying there's something wrapped up in this word that preexisted all of creation was with God and is God and is Christ in the flesh. And what is that thing? It's, it's the principle of reason. It is the system of logic that includes concepts like non-contradiction, concepts like syllogism, if this, then that. Premise, conclusion. Now, you can all get, all get very heady here, but the point is that in an, the abstract principle of reason, the logos pre-existed creation was with God and is God. And that's an extraordinary claim. It's an extraordinary claim to assert this. The same was in the beginning with God. So this is John, again, confirming his pre-existence, confirming that he was in the beginning with God. We could turn to John chapter 17 and we could say we could see Christ himself saying 
I've, I've glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So that's, so that's our Lord himself confirming his preexistence. He's saying, in the beginning, before the world was, I was with thee in glory. Amen. In Genesis 1, now we have to, it's so deep, we could do this for many, many sermons. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So the word, the spoken word is the agent of creation. Light was the first act of God's creation. The first act of categorization, the first act of distinction that took place in history. And it's very important. I think this is it, it almost eludes us sometimes the importance of what God is doing. He's operating by means of distinction, by means of categorization, by means of logic. Okay, we think that these things are like heady sort of things of the world, but they're not because they come directly from God. We are living out our our purpose as images of God when we participate in this process of naming things, of categorization, of distinction, of logic, of rigorously observing the world naming things for what they are and denying falsehoods about the world. Okay. So it's just from the very first word of the Bible. It's just from step one. If we go to Genesis, I want to explore this a little bit because it's just so deep and so important. It's, and it's a matter of application. It is a matter of application here that we understand what our purpose is in Genesis two, verse 19, it says out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam. Fascinating. He brings them unto Adam to see what he would call them. So God has got a question. I want to know what this man is going to do with these creatures that I've made. What is he going to call them? And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to all the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help need for him. Okay. So God makes all things. He makes the creatures. He, he places them before Adam because God, for some reason, it doesn't explain why. God obviously can tell the future. He knew what he was going to name the animals. But there's some kind of like play or relationship taking place here, which is that God and makes man, he makes a creature, and then with through the through some sort of um, agency that he's given this creature, he wants to see what he's going to name the animals. And this is pre-fall, right? So, so this is man in his perfect form prior to the fall, prior to sin. So this is complete man doing exactly what man was made to do, naming the things before Almighty God, walking with God in the garden, and that's perfect. That's perfect. That's what we are meant to do in our completeness before the fall, prior to usurping God's role. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, Genesis 1, existence is being spoken. The... uh, 
the the object of the speech, or or let me say the um, the word itself is Christ. And we, we know this is true too in Colossians one verses twelve through nineteen, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us to be partakers in the of the inheritance of the saints of light. Remember that saints of light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Okay. This motif of from darkness into light from the very first verse of the Bible to the very last. It's just it. That is the process of sanctification from darkness into light hath translated us into the kingdom of his, of his dear son, translated, moved us into the kingdom of his, uh, his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. This is Paul confirming what we learned from John in the gospel of John. This is why the scholars may be right. Maybe John was written after all of, the Paul, all of Paul's letters. But they might be wrong because maybe Paul is learning a thing or two from John. It's just not clear. And frankly, if the, if the university is telling you something, you should be extremely skeptical at this point. Okay, so Colossians, confirming what we know, all things made by him, for him, through him. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We think of, again, we learn from the world, and we think that life is just a biological process. It's just a gamete merging with an egg and creating a fetus, and then it grows up into a thing, just a clump of cells. And that's what the world teaches us. But we learn here that life, properly understood, is the light of men. John, first John, John is an incredible writer. I think we all think of Paul as like the great like philosopher of the early church. And that's probably true in the sense that Paul is like very academic and systematic. But John is truly, he, he's understanding things and he's conveying like realities in not just like a systematic way that an academic can understand, but in plain, simple terms, metaphors that anyone can understand. Because John in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, this is the record God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12, he says, Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Over and over and over again, I am the light. The light is the life of men. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. That's John chapter 12. So, and what is light? Light is the means by which we observe the world. It's the means by which we, it, it, light makes things visible. Light makes things clear. Light lets, lets us see. We cannot, we cannot see without light. Without light, we would be blind. We would be in darkness. This is a simple thing. We all understand this, right? But, to, but what is the metaphor pointing to? The metaphor is pointing to perhaps the fear of God, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments, his praise endureth forever. Remember that commandments, all, uh, 
a good understanding have all they that remember his commandments, that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. For by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. Your life is increased by God. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So this is the last verse. I'm sorry, I have no idea how much time I've taken. He that believeth on him is not condemned. So this is John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for every one that doeth evil hates the light. Neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. The supremacy of light and the subordination of darkness is a fundamental Christian doctrine. But it needs to be reinforced because dualism And the heresies that come out of dualism are rampant in the world today and in the church today. Good versus evil, dark versus light, matter versus spirit. Gnosticism is a problem in the world today and in the church today. And the fact is that it's not dualism. Okay, All things come from God. God is supreme, supreme to all these things. There is not some equal balance between light and darkness. Light is the supreme concept. Dark is a subordinating, a subordinated force. So when somebody says, when people come to you with sort of moral relativism, what they're doing is they're doing, oh, it's just light versus dark. It's just you know the way you see it versus the way I see it. It's just uh, you know, or, or they'll say something like, these are just things of this world. It's just a material concern, as if it's somehow out of the kingdom of God. But God. All authority has been given to Christ in heaven and in earth. All authority. There's no space that is with outside of God's authority. Okay? That means that, and that includes the state, that includes the corporations, that includes the bedroom, that includes what you wear, what you think, what you do. Every molecule of creation is under the authority of God. There is no dualism. There is no equal and opposing force. It is the sovereignty of God that is the principle by which creation reigns. Now, that's not an unmoving... God is unmoving. God is unchanging. But God is also in relationship with himself. He loves the Son. The Son obeys the Father. We are comforted by the Spirit. It is a dynamic trinity which we worship. It is not a stagnant, mono, unipersonal God that we worship, right? And I, you know, so this light concept, I've worked in technology all these years, transparency, transparency, transparency. They love to talk about transparency in technology. They love to talk about it in the state. They don't ever even begin to attain such a thing. Uh, now to be transparent means to be open and unsecretive about your motives and what you're doing. And in the Bible and in the church, rightfully so, secrets are generally held in a, in a negative light. And this makes perfect sense because you know, Jesus cried and said in John 12, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. I 
am come a light into the world. Whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Whosoever believeth in me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day, for I have not spoken to myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know his commandment is life everlasting. His commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Everything the Father told Christ to say, he said. There was nothing he kept to himself. We, we are called to know God and to glorify him forever and amen, because Christ says his commandment is life everlasting. So what does that mean? His, if he's the light and the life of men, and the commandment is the life everlasting, then Christ is the commandment. There's this great there's a great thing that just happened in the news recently. There's a controversy, right? There's this show um, that these Mormons are making called The Chosen, and they've got like the trailer for the new season, and in the trailer, I don't know exactly how it goes, but the Pharisee says something like, we only worship the law of Moses, and Christ responds, I am the law of Moses, and this caused a great controversy, because nowhere in the Bible does Christ say, I am the law of Moses, like literally, but according to this, this is something that he could have said, right? He is the judge. He is the word. He is the law. But he's also grace and forgiveness and unmerited favor for the elect. Finally, I'm going to close out here. There's the application of all this. How do we use this in our lives? Well, Paul tells us in First Thessalonians, but of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness. Ye, my brethren, are not in darkness. That the day should overtake you as a thief, ye are all children of light. And the children of the day... We are not children of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Let us not sleep in death and spiritual ignorance. Let us not sleep in the lies that we tell ourselves, the deceptions that we make for ourselves, the falsehoods that we weave around us to protect the agency and the power and the idol idol of the self or whatever false idols we're worshiping. But let us live in the day. Let us not sleep in death. Let us live in the day. Let us watch for our Lord and his second coming and be sober. We'll pick this up next time. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for the light that you've shared with us today. Thank you for the light of your son, Lord. Thank you for being here in our midst, Lord. Forgive us where we've gone astray. Forgive us where we've missed the mark, Lord. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. What Brother Danny's brought forth and desire continued interest in your prayers. Want to uh, talk a little bit more about the articles of faith and specifically article number six. Six and seven go very much together. Um, we've, we'll just briefly go through the first five. We believe that there is but one true and living God. 
and that in the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Ghost, which three are one. Number two, we believe that the Old and New Testament scriptures were given by the inspiration of God, and we accept them as being the only complete and unerring rule of faith and practice. Number three, we believe that God has always pursued his own infinitely wise plan in all of his works and ways, and that he will ever continue to do so. Hence, all things brought to pass by him are but the result of his holy, wise, and determinate counsel from all eternity. Number four, and we referenced this the last time and how that number four and number five go together. We believe that Adam, though created in the image of his master, who pronounced him very good, did of his own volition willfully transgress the law of God and as a consequence became a fallen and totally depraved creature and all mankind with him. And then number five and number four and five sort of go together. We believe that redemption, regeneration, sanctification, justification and salvation are by the virtue of the birth, life, death, resurrection and mediation of Jesus Christ and in no other way and that all the graces of the spirit are referable to the church of God. Just simply emphasizing that it's all through and by Jesus Christ. Now, number six and number seven sort of go together. Specifically want to focus on number six. Uh, We believe that all the saints were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, that they are elected to eternal salvation according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and that they will all be called with a holy calling, and that the righteousness of Christ actually imputed to them by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit, so that none of the heirs of promise can be eternally lost." going to read number seven because it's also emphasized in some of the same verses that we emphasize for number six. We believe that all the elect of God were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world and that they should be holy and without blame before him in love. In looking at number six, article number six, I actually see that it's uh, broken down almost in five different areas, and we'll just briefly touch on that. But there's five really important points that are emphasized here in this one article of faith. It's important that we uh, be reminded of the articles of faith that is represented by the church here. And it will uh, affect how you read the scriptures, how you view the scriptures, how you view the church as you are reminded of these articles of faith. Um, These were very similar to the articles of faith that I uh, first heard when I went to the church in Lubbock. And as I would mention, most of the churches have very similar articles of faith. Some have 11, 12, 13, but most of them are pretty well the same. Going to touch on this sixth article of faith. I love this article. This is really, really good. I remember when I didn't really understand this or even embrace it or believe it. And then I remember the the delight that I had when God sort of opened my eyes to what some of these principal points are. The first part of number six We believe that all the saints were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. 
So Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 1 talks about and brings out the point, the principal point of predestination. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to back up to verse 28. I love this verse. I do believe that it's referring to specifically and maybe more, but the five things that are below in verse 29. And we know, Paul says, there's something that we know. He says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. First of all, he emphasizes a particular group of people right here, a chosen group of people. He says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, not everything that happens in my life, it doesn't appear that it works to my good. God is the only one that can take something bad and bring something good out of it. I can take something good and make something bad out of it. But God is the only one that can take anything bad and bring something good out of it. Does God always do that? I don't see it in my life. But here's, but it is directly following these five points right here. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them. And then he specifically mentions again, the category to them who are the called according to the purpose. We're called by the purpose of Jesus Christ and the purpose of almighty God. And then he says for whom he did for no. Now he begins to emphasize again, the people that he's talking about right here. He's talking about people, not things or events right here. He says, for whom he did foreknow. He's talking about, and then he emphasizes the destiny of his people. He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And predestinate just simply means predetermined your destination. He predestinated where you're going to end up. He says, for whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate. It's interesting to note right here that the very same number of people that he starts out with in foreknowing, he ends up with in glorification. He mentions five points right here. For whom he did foreknow, did he also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then five things that he mentions right here. And it's the same group of people. He doesn't lose a single one along the way. He doesn't pick any additional ones up along the way. It's exactly the same number that he foreknew. He says he predestinated. He says, moreover whom, that's all of those that he foreknew, moreover whom he did predestinate. He says that same group, every single one of them, them he also called. And he says that that he called, he also justified. And that same number, that same group that he justified, he also glorifies as well. And that's when we're going to end up in glory someday. In the eyes of Almighty God, we are as if we are justified. And we are justified in the, in the finished work of Christ. But in the eyes of Almighty God, we are glorified. But we're going to experience it in its entirety. Entirety when we end up in heaven someday. We'll experience the fullness of it in heaven someday. So it says that we believe that all the saints were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, 
in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I, I love how it brings out the points right here that this choosing was done by God and he did it from before the foundation of the world and he says according as he hath chosen us he's the one doing the choosing. There's a lot of folks that will tell you that, that you're in the driver's seat to do the choosing but he tells us right here that he's the one that chooses us. He said according as he hath chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world and he says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love and then here's the, the clincher right here. He says having predestinated or predetermined your destination he says having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Not according to our will but it's according to his will. So the article of faith that our forefathers embraced right here and pinned down is that we believe that all the saints were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Simply means that they were chosen by God from before the foundation of the world and that it's because of Jesus Christ that they're going to live in heaven someday and there's not a single one of them that's going to be lost along the way. And then the second part of it is right here. And we believe that they're elected. This is all in, in the sixth article right here. They, they really tucked a whole lot together in this sixth article right here. But it says that they are elected to salvation according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I remember when I first read this, I, I, I remember thinking, I didn't know this was in the Bible and, 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 and didn't really understand this concept. But yet, uh, since that time, I've grown to appreciate it and love it very much. He says that we're, the, the article says we're elected to eternal salvation according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Let's go over to Romans chapter 9 and look at what he says right here. He talks about election right here in Romans chapter 9. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. So he begins to lay the groundwork right here that your election by Christ, by God, is not based upon your works. It's not based upon your good works, your bad works, any kind of works. It's based upon Almighty God. It's based upon Jesus Christ. He said it's not according to your works, but it's according to Him that calleth. That's Almighty God through Christ Jesus. And then here's what He says. As it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. I remember the first time I read that, I thought to myself, well, that just doesn't sound fair. It really doesn't. I thought that God gave everybody a chance. Well, if he'd have given everybody a chance, there wouldn't be anybody in heaven. If it was based upon a chance system, it's not based upon a chance system. He says, and then he knew what we would think. That's the reason he comes up with this next verse along the way. I remember when I read that, I thought, that just doesn't sound fair. Well, the next verse really puts that to bed because that's, he knew exactly what some of us would think. Maybe you didn't think that. Maybe you were taught this from your birth. But I thought, well, that doesn't sound fair. And so then Paul says, what shall we say then? 
and this is almost like saying it doesn't sound fair, is their unrighteousness with God. That's almost the same as saying, well, it doesn't sound fair. Well, he then begins to explain it right here. He says it's not based upon chance. It's not based upon uh, everybody having an offer for salvation. He says it's based on Almighty God. And here's what he says. He says, is there unrighteousness with God? He, he answers it just as quick as he says it right here. He says, is there unrighteousness with God? If you think it's not fair, then he's going to answer it for you real quick. He says, God forbid. He says, it's according to God. It's not according to man. It's according to God's choice, to his sovereign will, his sovereign pleasure, and not based on the frailty and feebleness of man. And then he comes down. I love this right here. He says, for he saith to Moses, I'll have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion upon whom I'll have compassion. It's not of him that willeth. It's not of him that runneth, but it is of God that showeth mercy. God is the one that does the choosing from before the foundation of the world. He's totally sovereign in that. And it's not based upon a chance system at all. And God is totally Sovereign in making it. And he comes down and he says, if you question that, he says, you need to be reminded that he is the potter and we are the clay and he has the power over the clay. If he chooses to make one lump to honor and one unto dishonor, God is sovereign in what he does. And who are we to question God at all? So the second point being that we are elected to eternal salvation, according to the foreknowledge of God. And then Then uh, the third part says, and that they will be called with a holy calling, that they'll be called with a holy calling. He just simply is stating right here that those that are chosen in Christ are called in Christ and that when they are called, it's not going to be an offer for them to maybe accept or embrace or believe in order to get uh, to get spiritual life. But when they're called, they're called with an effectual call 100% of the time in every single case. There's not a single one that will resist the calling of Almighty God and miss out on spiritual life or eternal salvation because of their own desire to go away from God. That's the desire of all of us, aside from the grace of God, to go away from God. But it's not a hard thing for the Lord to call his people with his, when he speaks the life-giving voice, we live. It's just as powerful and effective as when he spoke light into existence in the very beginning. The same God that spoke light into existence speaks life into your uh, uh, frail bodies and you have spiritual life. And here's where I love these verses in John chapter 6. He says, all that the father giveth me shall come to me. I just I love how he he says all means he's not going to lose a single one. And God's family, I believe, is a big family. I believe it's a large family. Some folks think it's us four and no more. I believe that God has a big family out of every nation, kindred, tongue and people and tribe. I believe he's got a really big family. It's referred to as the sands of the sea and the skies of the the sky. I believe that God's family is a is a large family. He says all that means that there's not a one that's going to be lost. All that the father giveth me 
That's Christ talking. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will that hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing and raise him up again at the last day. Verse 44 says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up again at the last day. Here's some examples of God blessing with, uh, with his calling and giving spiritual life. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 9, it talks about David. And it says that David was made to hope while upon his mother's breast. That means he was given spiritual life while he was nursing upon his mother's breast. That David, but by the, the grace of Almighty God, experienced something. He experienced spiritual birth, spiritual life, and it happened while he was upon his mother's breast. John, if you go over to uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 44, it talks about John, and John experienced it while it was yet in his mother's womb. John leapt for joy at the salutation of Jesus Christ, and, and that's an evidence. So it doesn't require the preacher in order to get spiritual life. What it requires is the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, and it can happen at any point between conception and death in the life of of the individual. The third one is the Apostle Paul in in Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul was going about persecuting Christians, and all of a sudden there was a dramatic change in his life. And he would go back and refer to that change in his life. And then the last one that we'll mention, showing that it can happen even at the 11th hour in our life, is the thief upon the cross. If you go to Luke chapter 23, verse 42, it it talks about how that the thief on the cross had a change of heart. And he was railing before against Christ. And then he was crying unto the Lord and said, remember me. And he said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. There was a change. And when God quickens with his spirit, there's something different about us. We may not understand all there is about Jesus Christ and about his word and about his people. We may not understand all there is about heaven, but there's something different. You can tell yourself if there's somebody that's completely dead or they have life, you can generally tell that there's something different about them. The next one. I love this next part right here. Love this next next verse right here, emphasizing the next the next part. Um, And that the righteousness of Christ is actually imputed to them by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit. So here it's emphasized in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the fourth part of this article of faith. And that the righteousness of Christ is actually imputed to them by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit. We've already said that it's not based upon our own righteousness. It's not based upon our good works, our deeds, our choosing, but it's based upon the righteousness of Christ. Here's where sovereign grace really kicks in. And this really encourages you along the way. When you look back on your life and you see that 
Boy, I've messed up a whole lot many, many times along the way. This keeps you from worrying about somebody else along the way. Because this teaches you to know that the righteousness that you have is not based upon your own accomplishments, your own achievements. Your righteousness is not going to have to outweigh your good works over your bad works. But the righteousness that you have is the righteousness of Christ that is imputed within you. Here's what he says. I love this in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, verse uh, chapter 1 verse 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And that he hath chosen the base things of the world uh, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, things which are not to bring to naught things that are. He said God did it a different way. God didn't base it upon a merit system. God didn't base it upon an achievement system. God chose it to be different. And here's why he did. He says that no flesh should glory in his presence. He said that's the reason that he designed it the way that he did. That's the reason that he designed salvation the way that he did. Election the way that he did. Is that no flesh should glory in his presence. The only place that we can glory is in the Lord. We can't glory in ourselves. We can't glory in other people. We can only glory in the Lord. And here's what he says. He says it twice right here. So it's really good to be reminded. But I love this verse. This verse. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Who of God... Is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The way I get that is that your righteousness, your deliverance, your sanctification, your wisdom, and your redemption is all of Christ putting it in you. It's of Him that you experience it. He says, but of him are ye in Christ, Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then he says it a second time right here. Love this. That he, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. He just simply says, I've designed it the way I've designed it so that the only place that we can glory is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe that's where they probably got this portion of the article that and the the righteousness of Christ is actually imputed to them by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 emphasizes that he left us with the Holy Spirit, the comforter, and that not only is the Holy Spirit with us, but the Holy Spirit, it says, is actually in us. God imputes it within us. John chapter 14. 14. And then the last one. I love this. I grew up in West Texas and there was a, a, a familiar denomination that believed that you could be saved one day. And if you messed up, you would lose your salvation. And that it was basically that the Lamb's Book of Life uh, was written in pencil with an eraser. And you might be there one day and that you might be erased the next day. And I had friends 
that that was what they were taught. And I tell you, I'm glad this is in our article, but I'm even more so glad that it's in the scriptures to support that we're not going to be lost. He says, so that none of the heirs of promise can be eternally lost, that none of the heirs of promise can be eternally lost. There's a couple John talks about that were kept by the power of God uh, uh, in first Peter chapter one, five. I love this one right here. I mean, as, as one preacher said, you'd have to work hard to misunderstand this verse. I mean, this is just so clear right here. He says, and this is Christ delivering this message. Now, Christ was the perfect preacher. Everybody else that's come along since Christ is imperfect. And so if somebody was misunderstood, it's very likely that it would be because they weren't perfect. Or that the message wasn't delivered perfect. But here you've got the perfect preacher delivering the perfect message. And look what he says. He says, but she believed not. Because you haven't embraced my gospel? No. Because uh, you didn't achieve good works? No. He says, but ye believe not. He just simply says, because you're not of my sheep. I mean, that's just getting right down to it. He says, you don't believe because you're not one of mine. He says, ye believe not because you're not of my sheep, as I've said unto you. And then I love this right here. He says, my sheep. He, he says it. I, I, I love it when I see these parents, these young parents, and they, they talk about my children. I mean, I, I tell you, I imagine Brother Jamie says it with great authority and excitement. Brother Calvin, my family that God has blessed me with. Here he says, my sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And he says, by the way, I know who they are. And they follow me. We don't always follow him all the time, 100% of the time. But you recognize the, 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 you recognize the, the blessing of Christ in your life. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And he says, and I give unto them eternal life. And here he mentions it two times. When he mentions something twice, I believe that it's just, it may be for those of us that are slow to embrace it, or it may be that he wants to put special emphasis upon it right here. It's mentioned two times right here. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And he says, and I give unto them eternal life. And here's what he says. And they shall never perish. Now, this is Christ talking, but look what he says. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Sounds to me like there's not anybody going to be lost. Because if you're a child of God, you are in the hand of Jesus Christ. And he says, Christ is saying that you're secure in my hand. You talk about eternal security of the saints. It doesn't get any better than that. But it does. And you're going to see what he says. He says, my sheep hear my voice. He says, I have them in my hand. And he says, no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. And then look what he says. And he says, and he says, but then my father, which gave them me is greater than all. And he says, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And he says, I and my father are one. You talk about eternal security for the saints of God. You're in the hands of Jesus Christ. You're in the hands of almighty God. 
Christ and the Father are one. And he says there is no man that's able to pluck you out of the Father's hand or of the hand of Jesus Christ. So that's where our forefathers get the final and fifth point of this sixth article of faith. That none of the heirs of promise will be eternally lost. They simply believe that the scriptures taught that if someone is a child of God and they're saved by Jesus Christ, that they're going to end up in heaven. And it's the same number that Christ died for and represented. And it's the same number that were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And that they're going to be justified and they're going to be glorified and they're going to live with Christ forever. We believe that all the saints were predestinated. Their final destination was predetermined. We believe that all the saints were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. We believe that they were elected to eternal salvation according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Not a surprise to God. God knows who's going to be in heaven. And that, 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 that they will be called with a holy calling. That's at some point between conception and death. They'll be called with a holy calling. And that the righteousness of Christ will actually actually be imputed to them by the effectual working of the Holy Spirit. He just simply means that the Holy Spirit is effective 100% of the time in imputing the righteousness of Christ in the heir of grace, in the child of God. And then he just simply says, and that none of the heirs of promise can be eternally lost. They're secure in the hands of Almighty God and in the hands of Jesus Christ, and that God and Christ are one, And there's no man that can pluck them out of the Father's hand. Romans chapter 8, you can go over to the latter part of the chapter. He emphasizes right there again. There's nothing. He mentions a whole list of things. And he says, nor anything else that's going to separate you from the love of Almighty God. Christ loves you. God loves you. You're in the hand of Christ. You're in the hand of Almighty God. And no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. That's the sixth article of faith. When uh, Sister Victoria, I mentioned this the other day, but when Sister Victoria expressed a desire to unite with the church through baptism, we just enjoyed, I enjoyed it, and I think she did too. She had a smile on her face when we were doing it. I enjoyed being in the basement with she and her father and her two brothers going over the articles of faith, and and we just, it was such a blessing, and... uh, I think it's good for us to occasionally go through the articles of faith to know what our forefathers believed that the scriptures taught and um, to pass it down when we're gone, to pass it down to those that will follow after us and emphasize those those important points of the scriptures.